0: you are listening to the sermon podcast of connection church a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of jesus in sioux falls south dakota for more information visit siouxfallsconnection.com thank you for listening and i want to invite you then as is our custom for you to join me we will be in matthew the first gospel the first of the four gospels and the first of the books of the entire new testament in the 14th chapter So if you don't have a Bible or a smartphone or something that will get you access to that or a friend next to you that you can look over their shoulder, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. Please take that as our gift to you, but don't be afraid of the table of contents. In fact, there are some things that you'll hear that we say regularly, and hopefully as we journey through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll get where we say them. Uh, In fact, one of these things is, this will be fresh on your mind, but we say that as you open the Bible, even if this is the very first time and you're very unfamiliar with it, right? Even if you're just like, hey, and you call the person in your phone that I won't say her name out loud because then everyone will, everyone's phone will go crazy. Uh, hey, find Matthew chapter 14, right? Whether it's the first time and you don't know how to get there or it's the hundredth time, we, we believe that those who open their hearts and minds to God's word are like scribes who have a, who have a treasure trove of both old and new treasures. So join us into, uh, in, in, in the middle of our journey through the gospel of Matthew, I'll give us a, a kind of a recap, but we'll read the entirety of chapter 14 together, and what will begin a ma- the, the fourth, roughly, depending on how you count them, major section of Matthew. Now, up to this point, Matthew has been telling us the good news. That's what that word gospel is. It just simply means good news. The good news of who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. And up to this point, we've been introduced to Matthew about this powerful work of God in Christ as the son of David. We'll see even today the son of God, the the God man, the one who was truly and fully human. So much so that we saw last week that people disregard him because he was too human. And yet he is fully and truly the son of God, God dwelling among us, working mighty, power, uh, mighty powerful acts, teaching powerful things through his miraculous birth in a lineage of sinners where he comes to identify with and join the list of sinners as the sinless one, as, as the one who is, even we saw by John the Baptist, baptized uh, John the Baptist says, you know, why, why, are you, why am I baptizing you? You should baptize me, and it's all a part of how Matthew is introducing us to Jesus who comes to take the place of sinners. And even as John says, like, why are you, why are you being baptized? It's as if Jesus is saying, I'm here to take the place of sinners. As John wonders, why are you there in the place of sinners? Matthew is as, It's as if Matthew is telling us that's exactly what Jesus came to do. And so we've heard these powerful teaching that are in the famous Sermon on the Mount from chapters 5, 6, and 7. Powerful works. But then, as we saw after this kind of last prominent teaching, the tone starts to shift. People become less receptive. And even though the crowds continue to gather, the animosity, and, and as we see here today, the, the misunderstanding of Jesus grows Even to where we saw a few weeks ago, the Pharisees, the religious teachers, the teachers of the religious law of the day, plotted to assassinate, to kill Jesus. That's how furious they were with Jesus. And so that tone continues. That is that we continue to meet people that Matthew introduces us to that that don't fully understand or get Jesus. And he's telling us the story of these people who don't fully get Jesus so that you and I would know what it looks like when we miss him. And we would have even a, a better understanding of what it would mean to trust him so i want to invite you to consider that very thing what it would look like to love and trust and follow jesus as we walk through the 14th chapter it'll take a couple of minutes to read don't worry if you space out that's okay i intentionally want to make it a, a, a practice and discipline of ours to stretch our attention span for the bible as well as stretch our attention span for the teaching of God's word. Now, I don't wanna abuse that attention span. Forgive me when I do that. Uh, but we're gonna read through the whole chapter of Matthew, chapter, uh, chapter, of, uh, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see how it all works together to point, to point us to something about Jesus. Last week, we saw that Jesus was rejected in Nazareth by people who misunderstood him, and so the transition into this new section comes with another misunderstanding from a person named Herod. So, beginning in verse one of chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him, that is John, to death, he, that is Herod, feared the people. Because they held him, that is John, to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, They came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him, that is Jesus, that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I pray that these become the very words of God for us to behold the Son of God and find comfort today. I think what we find here is Jesus is for the suffering, the starving, the sinking, and the sick. Forgive the alliteration, it's just, it just makes it easier for me, and hopefully you to remember. Jesus, in these four sections, shows himself to be the God of the people who suffer, the people who, who starve, the people who sink, and the people who are sick. If I might connect the dots between the last few weeks, I might say as strongly as I possibly can that when we think about who doesn't get Jesus and, in fact, hear stories of people who misunderstand Jesus, we find here suffering, hungry, drowning, and sick people are the ones that get Jesus. Suffering, hungry, drowning, and sick people are the ones that get Jesus. I I think what that might even entail for the rest of you is that Jesus did not come for the strong and the capable. Jesus did not come for the achievers. In fact, it is the achievers who miss Jesus, albeit I believe they're simply self-deceived into thinking they are such. It might even be stronger to say that suffering, hungry, drowning, and sick people are the ones that get Jesus because suffering, hungry, drowning, and sick people are the only kinds of people that exist. Now you may not find yourself in one of those categories, but it may just be because you haven't looked around just quite yet, or at least that you haven't considered who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So last week we saw a story of Jesus going to his hometown and the people misunderstanding and rejecting him. Matthew has not been shy about the fact that people have not only misunderstood, but even at this point become uh, become outright oppositional to Jesus. And so we've been hearing these stories about the wonderful teaching and the powerful acts of Jesus and, and these crowds of people flocking around them. But, but Matthew now makes it clear that opposition to what God is doing through Jesus is growing. There are still faithful and loyal people clamoring to get to know Jesus, and we'll hear more and more about them. And yet there's two narratives taking place progressing parallel to one another, people gathering in excitement and clamoring to know more about this Jesus, and more and more people collecting around him that hate him and want to silence him and even will kill him to do so. And so this next section, we see a picture of people misunderstanding Jesus, starting with Herod. So let's start with one of the first of those four. You see the suffering under what I'll call here or what the Bible elsewhere calls the suffering under the fear of man. The fear of man. Jesus has already gone to his hometown and been rejected because they thought he was something that he was not. But here we see he is ultimately rejected or at least misunderstood by Herod, a prominent king, ruler at that time, who misunderstands him for another reason entirely. So I have to give you kind of a crash course on Herod, and then uh, and, and we'll go from there. So it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Crash course, you don't need to remember a lot of this other than it is really confusing. If you start googling this, you'll find out there's, there's a, a character known as Herod the Great, and we're pretty sure he has something like eight different wives and 14 children, and he liked to name some of those children as much as he could Herod, which makes it even more confusing. And so you have here Herod the Tetrarch, and you'll hear about this other brother, Herod Philip, right? There are more of them, um, but Tetrarch, that is a son of Herod the king of this particular section of, of the world. Tetrarch simply means, and this is where all you, you Tetris nerds have your one chance, you can hold up the number with your hand. The word tetra is the number, oh yeah, and it's gone now. And now the opportunity for all your tetras nerves has come and gone, and it's, it will never, we'll never see it again. A fourth, it's a fourth. That is, that he is a, the, simply known as one of the four kings or one of the four rulers of a fourth of the kingdom. That in this case included Galilee, which up to this point, Matthew's been telling us, Jesus has been roaming around. So Herod, the ruler of this fourth of the kingdom, now it gets worse. Herod. We don't know how many wives he has exactly, but he has 15 sons and named them all Herod. Uh, And and you'll hear about one of them later when you get to the book of Acts and the apostle Paul, who is testifying on his way to Rome to, remember, Herod Agrippa, who also has a son, of course, who's named Herod Agrippa. The second, right? You get the idea. Uh, Now, why is that important? Why would I even give you that crash course on what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty, or at least for this purpose today, the Herodian dynasty. This name was important. This family and this dynasty was important. In fact, it was the most powerful, most influential family in this region at this time. You would have to leave to maybe make your way to Rome to where, in this case, the emperor, Caesar, would be ruler of all these things, but kind of the under rulers in this case, in this region, were the Herodians. Now, I invite you, use your imagination. Think of the most prominent, powerful name of family you can think of, right? Maybe, if, maybe your generation is like the, you know, political families like the, like the Kennedys or like the Bushes or, you know, maybe if you want to throw all class out the window, you'll think of, I don't know, a family like that everyone knows of, like the Kardashians, right? Who we know of. I don't know why we know who they are, but they're a well-known family. So now take all of that and kind of amp it up. And in this part of the world, this was them. This was the family. This was the Herodians. They're, again, and if, and if you were wondering about it, you're like, is this a big deal? Is this name a big deal? And they're like, yes. And we're going to continue to name all of our people after this person. And why is that all important? Because for John the Baptist to profess and proclaim a dissenting and even I would a rebuke to the most powerful dynasty at the time, got him thrown in prison. And as we even find here, at the whims of this crazy family, he finds his way even to death. So, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Now, this isn't the first time we've heard about this family, right? His father, Herod the Great, is the one attributed. We saw in the first few chapters of Matthew that when he found out that there was a king that might come, he's again, this is the man who was killed. He has killed wives and killed his own sons because he was afraid of losing his kingdom. And so we find here that the Bible tells us that when Herod the Great found out that there might be a king who might lead an insurrection against him, he goes and goes on a a killing spree of even the. Young boys, the baby boys in Bethlehem, in order to find and kill this potential king. This is not the first time we've heard about the craziness of this family. And Herod the Tetrarch hears about the fame of Jesus and he says to his servants, This is John the Baptist. Now you kind of have to do a little bit of a crash course back on John the Baptist. We already knew, and I told you this a few, a couple of months ago, that when when John starts some of this in chapter 11, questioning Jesus, things aren't turning out like he thought they would. He says, are you the one, even though he was the one who was telling everyone that Jesus was the one. He was asking that because he was in prison, and we get kind of a flashback here from the Gospel of Matthew into why he was in prison and how that story played out. You kind of have to look to even other, other Gospels to understand that, but uh, Mark tells us even a little, uh, a little bigger picture of this in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 6. He says, And Herodias, remember this is the wife of Herod, I'm going to say more about her in just a moment, had a grudge against him, that is John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. Why couldn't the wife of Herod, the Tetrarch, put John to death? Because Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. Now that's interesting. That is, that like, he was kind of protecting him, but also evidently imprisoning him, might have even been keeping him from worse things coming. For when he, that is Herod, heard him, that is John, he was greatly perplexed, right? He was fascinated by what John was saying, even when John was was saying things against him, and yet he heard him gladly. What I want to introduce you to here is the suffering that these people experience, and it's kind of a side lesson and what the Bible calls the fear of man. Proverbs 29 says it this way, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now, this is a crash course, and this is the only reason I bring it up, because it is replete in this section. This is a crash course on the fear of man. Herod, the Tetrarch, is is a graphic picture of a person who has no sense of himself or identity but only is a chameleon that is dressing up for whatever he thinks people will like that is the fear of man and this turning point this turning point in the story that that is an uh, an ominous foretelling of the death that will come for Jesus and those who will follow him starts with a story about kind of a haphazard killing While John the Baptist is a preview of Jesus and his power and speech, you see how not only is he a foretelling of the death that's coming to Jesus, but you see a foretelling of the fear that John and and then Jesus would spark in people in authority. The story's turning, and Herod, we see this Herod the Tetrarch, the ruler of a fourth, is hyper-aware of people. And what they think. You know what that feels like? Are you hyper aware of what people think about you? Or even worse, what they might think about you? Well friend, the backdrop of this turning in the story is a lesson Look at verse 1. He heard about Jesus and had a theory. We find, again, if you add it up with the Gospel of Mark, it's more like he was afraid. He was afraid. Oh my, the, the man that I killed has come back from the dead. He's been raised from the dead. And you know this, if you're afraid of a person and they come back the, from the dead, you know, would you be more or less afraid of them, Right? And so he has this theory that's already beginning to work out. He's worried about what this might be. But look, again, you just read it in verse 5. He feared the people. Look at verse 5. Though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. You hear it? That hyper-awareness of what people thought. Verse 7, you get another picture of it. He cared about what the sensual dancer wanted. Now you get this window into a corrupt dynasty. When his birthday came, he celebrated with the daughter of Herodias, his wife, dancing in some sensual way that tempted so much that he he lost self-control and like, I'll give you whatever you want. Now, side note here, this is is where I tell you, you want to know a little bit more the reason that John the Baptist spoke out against this marriage between Herodias and Herod uh, was that Herodias used to be married to Herod Philip, that is Herod the Tetrarch's brother. And we don't know exactly how, but uh, historians tell us that something, some interaction in Rome took place as they were dividing up the kingdom or doing something. um, And something happened to where Herodias leaves Philip in order to, uh, in order to, Run off with uh, Herod the Tetrarch, who also leaves his wife, uh, who ha- happens to be the daughter of a foreign king who wants to kill him, but luckily, the Emperor steps in and keeps him from doing that again, fun family stuff, right? Fun it gets better. Salome we find out, is the name of this daughter of Herodias, um, and she goes, and one historian points us out, she goes and marries. Uh, one of the other brothers, she she simultaneously becomes the the aunt or aunt of Herodias, her mother, and also the sister-in-law. That's fun stuff right there. (laughs) Anyway, I I say that just that this is a a haphazard and chaotic situation. And yet in the middle of that, did you hear what Herod was doing? He was hyper-aware of what people were thinking about him. And he promises, I'll give you whatever you want. And, and no doubt, the, the, again, in this chaotic, awful family, it was the mother who likely sent her teenage daughter to dance sensually for her husband. And so when he promises to give her whatever she wants, she goes to her mother and says, you know, what, what is it? And, and verse 8 says, prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The opportunity had come for her to get revenge against the person who had been publicly speaking out against her. And so you see the, the fourth example of his hyper-awareness of people, his guests. Did you, did you read that? And, and the king was sorry. As if, to remember, we saw it in the Gospel of Mark. It makes sense. He, he was fascinated by John. He, had, he, didn't, he wanted to kill him, but like, it was better just to have him around. It, apparently he thought he was an interesting. And so he was sorry, so sorry that he says that because of his oaths and his guests. Did you hear that phrase? And his guests. He commanded it to be given, and so he sent, and John the Baptist was beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. Here, that that language is speaking, Matthew's making very clear that this this person is young. Again, I want to ask, in light of this case study on kind of a chaotic and awful broken family, in the middle of it, you see this picture of Herod, who was hyper-aware of people. And I ask again, have you ever been there? Have you been hyper aware of what other people think of you or might think of you? And you find some powerful lessons here. One is that that kind of person can't be trusted. That kind of person is living with a, a kind of inner turmoil that will that will allow them to, to say one thing in one moment and one thing in another. They can't be trusted because after all, they're like, you know... It, who am I? Well, who do you want me to be? So hear it as a, as a warning. But here's a second warning I would offer to you. Are you hyper-aware of people? Now, this is just a, an observation that I have seen and, and known, especially even about myself. Are you hyper-aware of people? Well, then I bet you might be completely unaware of yourself. often the people who are the most aware of what everyone else thinks are the least aware of what's going on inside themselves now i've got theories as to why that is maybe they use that focus on others to distract or to like pacify themselves for what happens when they actually look inside themselves but you need to see what people will do with those destructive kinds of fears they will harm others They will harm others. And friend, this is an invitation for you and I to see, begin to see the context to which Jesus was sent. A people that desperately needed help. A people left to their own devices would just simply destroy themselves. And so friend, are you hyper aware of people? The fear of man is a snare and I bet you feel that. But I have good news. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You can fear him and trust him. And what do we do with these destructive fears that drive us, the fear of what other people think, or even worse, the fear of what they might think? I have a modest but biblical suggestion. Do you fear what people think? Even now, you're you're worried, you're terrified of what people around you might find out about you. I have a modest suggestion, love. Love. Love the Lord. As Jesus summarizes all the law and and other parts of the gospel. And love your neighbor. Because when you love God for who he is, you're free to fear him rightly. And when you love your neighbor for who God has made him or her to be, you are freed then from fearing them. If you think this is something I'm making up on my own, I'm not. 1 John 4.18 says this, that there is no fear in love. But perfect love does what? It casts out fear. For here has to do with punishment. For here has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I have a, a suggestion. If, if you are stricken by and paralyzed what other people think of you, join the club and see the love of God for what it is. And it's purging power. If that's not enough. 2 Timothy 1 says it this way. That for this reason, he says, Paul exhorting Timothy a young man who has much reason to be self-conscious about where he is, I remind you to fan into the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Friend, behold here. Behold here the love of God and the powerful effects of our fear of man on others. You might think that you're helping them, but you're not. And loving them rightly means that you are freed from fearing them. Side note here, if there's some of you in this room, maybe you're on the opposite end of that spectrum, and you're like, I don't even care what people think, right? I don't even, I don't even care what people think about me. That's fine, that's fine. For you, the repentant, repentance is not a fear, but it's a repentance of lack of love. And I, I'm almost certain that You need to love your neighbor for who God has made that person to be. You don't love them. And therefore, you're probably not fully free of fear of them. So see all of this as a case study of the turning tables in the story of Matthew. This is more and more going to be the story of Jesus and the people who follow him, even the people who precede him like John, that they will find themselves more and more in the hands of people, powerful people, who at a whim can destroy them and wipe them off the face of the planet. Last little observation I'll make here. This is one of the more powerful lessons of John the Baptist because we've heard a lot about him up to this point and there's going to be a new set of characters we'll hear from. This is the end uh, of hearing about John the Baptist. But, but here's what I would tell you is just, just an encouragement to some of you who may be like John the Baptist is your spirit animal, right? Like telling people what's up, keeping it real, that's your thing. Okay, I've already told you, probably, not probably you need to grow in love. I doubt you tell those things because you love them. But I also just want to warn you, if you really want, if you really want to be that guy, then you have, to, you have to do away with, I don't know, pavement and air conditioning. R- remember, John the Baptist had a prophetic voice because he lived in the wilderness and he didn't wear the clothes of culture. He made his own out of camel skin and he didn't eat the food of culture. He, he fed on wild locusts and honey. So, friend, if you have a powerful word to say to people, that's great. But don't be surprised when you are not welcome. And if you want to have a prophetic voice, I'm doing the math in my head as I speak. You can't be a prophet and have air conditioning at the same time. I mean, if you <laughs> I don't know what to make of that.. Ah. <laughs> but notice, He speaks truth to power, but sometimes, friends, power beheads truth. And this will be the story that begins to escalate in Jesus, and it will be the story in which the followers of Jesus find themselves. So don't complain when you're not welcome, because you have found yourself. With a calling of a prophetic voice, be comforted by God, we know the story of John here. No one, again, I, I told you about Herod. You've never heard of him. You've never talked about him. No one's ever taught you about them. He's nobody in this story. He's a footnote. In this sense, I, I think you find that the fear of man leads us to say, like Herod, "Your life for mine." And the fear of God. And an encounter with his transforming love that casts out fear says, my life for yours. The fear of man always throws someone else under the bus, whether it's Herodias sending her daughter, or whether it's anyone else sending a part of the beheading of John, the fear of man always says, your life for mine. And the fear of God always says, my life for yours. In effect, we're seeing a, a living, breathing example of Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the persecuted. Even if you are rejected, it is not, does not mean that God and his kingdom is not coming. Power sometimes wins over truth. It beheads truth. But only for a short while. And following Jesus may, may, will cost you everything. And that's perfectly good. How do I know that's good? How do I know that it's okay to lose? How do I know that it's okay to experience this kind of suffering in this life? Well, we have the next two stories and then a third of healing to tell us. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. There are so many things going on in these next two powerful, miraculous acts. I'm going to summarize them as best I can, but I want to hold them all together in this chapter, so that means I'm going to skip over a lot. But, but notice here that Jesus withdrew. You see already a picture, like, like Jesus in John chapter 11, when his friend Lazarus dies, he goes and weeps with them, even though he's about to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. But when he finds out that his cousin John is dead, did you, did you hear his human response. He withdraws. He he goes somewhere else. In fact, he goes to a desolate place. Have you ever felt that? So has Jesus. The need to be away. Now, granted, there's a difference, I think, between solitude and isolation, and we also find here that Jesus didn't just crave Uh, In in this case, isolation, he craved solitude. That is, he craved time to go to a desolate place in order that he would what? That he would meet with the Father, we find in the next chapter, or in the next passage. He was getting away so that he could meet with God. And just a side note here, if if, man, if, if Jesus, the perfect and righteous, fully human, fully God, man walking the earth with divine powers, needs time away and breaks to be with the Father, I'll be as explicit as possible than you do too. And I know what you might even say here, I'm too busy, I got so much stuff going on. And I, all I would say, that proves the point, man. All the more reason, you are more likely to spin off into some sort of idolatrous and awful and selfish thing when you think you're that important. And if Jesus, the omni-important Son of God, knew that he needed to get away, to meet with the Father, to be recharged so that he would love and serve others rightly. Might we join him uh, and, and, and even take it as an example? Did you hear what he had to do? Um, he withdrew and then he, later in the next section, he dismissed people. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping you'll apply this graciously and by the power of the Holy Spirit and in gracious community, but there are some things, maybe even people, you might need to dismiss for a time to welcome the father, so Jesus withdraws. Sad, you, you get the idea here. He's he's getting away, but the crowds wouldn't have anything of it. In verse thirteen: When the crowds heard it, they followed him, on foot to, um, from the towns. So you get the idea that like. Jesus gets on a boat to move a little faster to get away from the people, and the people are like kind of in a crowd following along on the water. Like there he is, there he is, there's his boat, right? It's like a paparazzi scene where he's moving along until finally he 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 comes back to the shore, evidently, and the crowd is all there. And why does he do that? Did, did you hear that? Did you hear the reason why in verse 14 he had not the first time we've heard of this in this gospel, compassion on them? He had compassion on them he saw their state and went in to, d- to heal their sick in verse 14 so if if the first thing that we saw is that god's redemptive plan is not stopped by suffering in the in the world then notice the second imagery the second picture and story teaches us that the compassion of jesus satisfies the hungry he goes ashore to heal them and and notice like this is a desolate place. They'd followed him out there. They're out in it at this point. There's no, right, there's, there's no, uh, there, there are no places to eat. And the people who hadn't, hadn't thought about that kind of bolted out there. And so the, the disciples simply say, okay, well, make sure you, hey, wrap it up, Jesus, right? Let, let's end this little session of healing and teaching. These people are hungry. Let's let them go their own way. And, and Jesus does this profound thing. Hey, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And what they have, we we only have five loaves here and two fish. The other Gospels tell us more about this, but suffice to say here that all four Gospels, other than the death and resurrection of Jesus, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only tell us about one event in unison, and that is this moment. The feeding, the miraculous feeding we find in the other Gospels there was a boy or someone who had some food that they had kind of gathered up. Certainly not enough to, to feed a grown man, much less 5,000 of them, plus women and children. And yet, we see here that the compassion of Jesus is enough to satisfy all the hungry. He satisfies them, these people with himself. Notice Herod's motive was pride and fear and led him to murder. Jesus' motive is compassion. It leads him to satisfy those who are desperate. And not only that, but Jesus empowers his disciples. He empowers them and then provides for them the ability to do what he commands them to do. Even so, did you hear at the end, 12 baskets are left over. Now numbers are always important uh, in the Bible. Sometimes they're 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 kind of like uh, there, are are these pictures or windows into something and in this case the same thing is true the, we're meant to see here without telling us necessarily uh, Matthew remember when when Jesus came down from the mount and gave and gave God's command in Matthew 5 6 and 7 we're meant to go like oh I've heard that story before I think I think I've heard I think I might have heard something and we're meant to see this picture of Jesus as a new Moses well here we are again that these 12 disciples represent this new Israel, that God's people now are going to be brought to him by faith through the grace that he exercised and his sacrificial work on the cross and, and victorious resurrection. And now, in the picture of this 12 again, the, the disciples were empowered to do the work of Jesus, the miraculous work that they could not have done without him, and then they had enough for themselves afterward. 12 baskets were left over. Some mir- a miracle that I can't explain. This is where some pastor goes into it, I have no idea. I have no idea. Something happened. Jesus blessed the food and then as he begins to distribute it and the disciples begin to distribute it, it miraculously becomes so much food that the whole crowd, men, women, and children are fed and then there's perfectly 12 baskets full as if, as if to encourage the followers of Jesus, like, don't worry. I've got, I've got all you need. Jesus and his compassion Satisfies the hungry. Notice, if you think of it in contrast to the story before, the most powerful people are often the least compassionate. And often the most compassionate people are the least powerful. And we see a perfect power of God and a perfect compassion all here in Jesus. Our situation doesn't get in the way of God's provision. Our difficulty, our need, our loss, our lack. It doesn't get in the way of God's provision and his sufficiency. He is enough and he has enough. And the center of the story is Jesus. Notice what Notice what the disciples brought and how that invites us to bring the same to Jesus. And I, and I want to even invite you, if, if you're not a believer, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian you're in this room or you have doubts or questions about what it means to be a Christian, hear this as an invitation. The only thing that they had to bring to Jesus for this miracle was their insufficiency. That was it. They were like, hey, you feed them. And what'd they say? Uh, that's not possible. We have but. We have only we only have five loaves and two fish. And notice, it was not their competency that Jesus used. It was not their self-sufficiency. It was not what they had. It was their willingness to admit what they did not have. And the strange paradox of the gospel is that the only thing you need to bring to Jesus is nothing. And for some of us, that might be the hardest thing we could imagine. But it was when they brought their insufficiency. Now this is where, again, this is where, uh, this is a hermeneutics or exegesis or let's say Bible interpretation lesson that I hope as a culture of our church we start to grab on here. This is where I've heard it taught a million times of how awesome the disciples were or how awesome the little boy was for bringing his food. And Matthew thought the little boy was so awesome he gave him no credit at all. Matthew wants us to see that the central figure in this story is Jesus. And so do I. I want you to see that. It is in Christ alone that this miracle even happens. It's because of Christ alone that his disciples get to be witnesses of it. It is because of Christ alone that they get to be beneficiaries of the abundance. And so too, when you and I come with nothing in our hands... But in admission of our insufficiency, Jesus says, that's it. He feeds and satisfies the hungry. Second story we see here, we're introduced to Peter. Immediately, he made the disciples. That word immediately shows up again and again. I think it's meant to show us that this is probably like the longest day and a half in Jesus' life ever, right? He's, <laughs> he's, uh, he loses his friend. He wants to get away. People keep clamoring for him. Uh, He'd be encouraged here. Even Jesus gets peopled out, uh, but he evidently musters up the ability to to love these people and he dismisses the crowds and and then goes to the mountain and we find to, to pray. And yet then he decides, well, it's already been a long day. I might as well walk across the choppy sea. So. So the boat at this point had gone a ways away as Jesus had stayed back, but not really that far, evidently. It was far away from land, but evidently, like the story we saw a few chapters before, the, the waves are beating these people down, and they're, they're afraid. It's the fourth watch of the night, and Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. Same thing here with this miracle. I'm not going to pretend to explain it or try to tell you what it looks like. I trust your, your imagination to connect the dots that Matthew leaves us here. The fourth watch of the night, late right? It's been a while. They've been, they've been rowing all night. And when the disciples saw him, the first thing they thought is what? <laughs> it's a ghost. Because after all, when you're floating along in, in the middle of the sea, the last thing you expect to see, to see is a person. And so anything makes more sense than a person, right? I mean, they could have said anything. They could have said, right, a monster, the Loch Ness Monster. And that would, yeah, that makes sense. A person walking along the water does not make sense. And so they think it's a ghost. They misunderstand. They cry out in fear. But here's that word again, immediately, right? You get this idea that Jesus didn't leave them very long. Immediately, Jesus said, take heart. And here's, here's a powerful and ominous, ominous phrase. It says, it is I, but more literally, the, the, the Greek phrase here, ego eimi, is I am. Now, this is ominous, I, I, I'm saying, because this shows up elsewhere in the Gospels. This is the, the, the powerful declaration of God that he is the God that is the ineffable name of God, I am the one that is, as opposed to other gods who are not, and he says, take heart, I am, hearkening back to the declaration of the God that is, and then we're introduced to a character that up to this point we don't know very well, and for the next, he's gonna show up in the next, I believe, six consecutive chapters and his name is Peter. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. But then he cried out, Lord, save me. And again, I love this. How long did Jesus let him sink? Immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, you little faith. You, you, it's, a, it's one word there. You, you, you little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. If the compassion of Jesus satisfies the hungry, then those who have been rescued by Jesus herald him as the Son of God. Uh, Same warning here. Uh, This is where you probably, I know I've heard this story taught so much. This is all about Peter. Uh, You should be like Peter. Get out of the boat. Uh, And I would just say, That's cool. Uh, Until it's not. (laughs) Good luck with that. On the other hand, you also hear that this becomes like a moral lesson, either of be like Peter or you better not be like Peter. He doubted. He looked at the waves. Don't you be looking at the waves, you, right? But here's what I would tell you again. Just like, just like your high school yearbook is not about you, the Bible is not all about you either. And this story is about Jesus. It's the sufficiency of Jesus that allowed him to float at all. And it was the sufficiency of Jesus to save him. And similar to to the declaration of their need that facilitated the miraculous feeding of 5,000, so also, did you hear what facilitated the saving of Peter? Lord, save me! Friend, if there's anything else you get from this text, that might be it. Today's the day you cry out to God, Lord, save me. Oh, and I have good news. Immediately, immediately he joins you in it. Immediately, he pulls Peter out. And the response, when you see the saving work of Jesus, is that as these disciples did, they cry out, he's the son of God. He's the son of God. Last story, and we'll wrap up our time together. Jesus provides satisfaction, we saw that, saving, and now even healing, all through his sorrow. He crossed over and began to heal people in another place, Right? You get the idea, it's just this, this marathon work of Jesus. Just, he's just just pouring himself out, healing, feeding, saving, walking on water. Right? All of these things were happening and he just starts doing amazing things. And all the people who come to him and touch him, it says, are made well. It's so many that Matthew doesn't even tell us. Right? He doesn't even, he's like, Man, there's so many. I, couldn't, I couldn't keep track. The details aren't even important. Everybody who came to him and touched his garment was made well. And all of that, mind you, came through what? his sorrow. Do you remember where this chapter began? This chapter began with Matthew giving this ominous foreshadowing of the death that is sure to come. It will become more and more ominous as we get closer to Jesus turning to Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be betrayed, handed over, and killed. And that's what starts this powerful act of satisfying, saving, and even healing. Now, why is that, why is that important? Because we're meant to begin to have our minds opened to the possibility that that's how God works. That this God of the universe has come to be with us, and it won't look like a kingdom you've seen before. It will be a kingdom established through what? Sorrow. This will be the suffering servant that steps in the place of sinners. He's misunderstood, misunderstood by the people who thought he was too human. Misunderstood by Herod, who thought he was some sort of an incarnation. He's misunderstood. Why? Why is that important? Because then you begin to see just how low Jesus was willing to crawl down to meet with you and me. I heard a friend of mine say it this way it's as if when we see the condescending or, or the humiliating work of Jesus, you see Jesus curling up on the bathroom floor with us so that we would look to him and go, oh, he is the one. He is the one who knows what it means to suffer. He is the one who knows what it means to be understood. So be encouraged. Jesus got peopled out too. It takes work. It takes work, discipline, to commit time to be with the Father. You might have to send some people away. But here's the graces, I think, piled on us here. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Jesus is that one experiencing rejection, loss, so that we would begin to see him as the healing one, the saving one, all through his sorrow. He is the one who provides satisfaction for the hungry, saving for the desperate, and healing for the broken, all through his sorrow, all through his pain. And in all of his pain, we are blessed every moment beyond this sorrow that he walks through here someone's blessed someone's restored someone's satisfied someone is healed so here's some encouragements for you I know on any given Sunday morning there's at least a couple of you who are here and you're wondering maybe you wouldn't say it this way but you're wondering like should I keep going is life even worth living Is there any reason to go on? And I have good news for you. For all the reasons that you could list, I wouldn't dismiss them, I bet it's a good list. For all the reasons that you could list not to go on, not to care, just to give up, Jesus enters into all of them. And I want you to know you can go on. And these stories are here to encourage you. I want you to know the story of John the Baptist beheading so that you will know that you're not crazy. Your suffering is real. Ephesians 5 says the days are evil. I want you to know that if you're empty and hungry in the depths of your soul, that Jesus longs to fill you. And by his compassion, he will even use you to distribute the grace that he will overwhelm you with. And he'll give you baskets full, abundant grace for days beyond today. I love that picture, right? There's like a when you're starving and you eat because you know you're going to run out versus like, oh man, I'm never going to run out. I, could, I can slow down now. I can, just, I can just enjoy this. There's baskets fulls waiting for me. I want you to know that the story of Jesus walking on water and saving Peter out of it so that you would see that all those who cry out to him, he draws up out of the chaos of their own sin. I want you to know that at any given moment, you think it's not worth going on. These things are so desperate. These stories help us to know that this desperation is an invitation to experience more grace. The stories here are Matthew's answer. There is a God who is aware of your desperation. And because of your suffering, because of your hunger, because of the mess you're in, Maybe you've gotten yourself into it or maybe other people have gotten you into it with yours or theirs or your good or bad intentions or theirs. There is a God who has come to be with us and among us to come with the wounded, the desperate, in order to forgive, restore, and offer more grace than you can imagine. See the compassion of Christ let that soften you some of you even today maybe maybe the challenge i would offer to you is that you are intellectually engaging with what i'm saying and you are doing everything you can to keep that from sinking from your head down into your heart let the compassion of jesus compel you less smart more heart and i want you to know that you're welcome to lay down all of your issues bring them to him I promise you, I'm committed for the rest of my life to preaching the compassion of God to the hurting, the starving, the sinking, and the suffering. Maybe that just means for you, stop being so shocked when you or other people fit into those categories. Stop being so shocked when there is suffering, starving, sinking, and hurting. This is the place evidently God loves to work. This is the place where we are called to herald this. The people of Nazareth were confused about Jesus. Herod was confused about Jesus, and he was not welcomed. But the story of Jesus' rejection and even the beheading of John is a foreshadowing of things to come. It's a foreshadowing. And did you hear my favorite part? Did you hear the most powerful one? It came, this is crazy, out of the mouth of Herod. You want to read it again with us? Verse 2, Herod, after hearing about the fame of Jesus, says, this is John the Baptist, he has been what? Raised from the dead. I mean, let's be clear, this guy has <laughs> this, this guy has no reason for us to listen to him or trust him, but he even he, like the man who stumbles across a treasure in the field, sees something here that you and I are invited to see. This Herodian dynasty that wiped out John and who knows who else is an invitation for us to see dimly as though it is something significant. Something like seed, something like leaven in bread, it doesn't seem like much. And even though they're bad weeds and bad fish like Herod, still wrapped up in this world, they're not fully taken out until Jesus comes back. Notice, God's king was the one who was rejected. But it did not mean that his kingdom would not arrive. No. It means that the suffering servant would become so unwelcome so identified with those who are losing it and sinking that we would realize he's the one who's come to welcome us before God. He became so unwelcome, so rejected, so misunderstood so that you and I before God would never experience any of those things. He took on all that was wrong and broken in the world to bear the suffering for sin that you and I have committed Herod was afraid, has been raised from the dead. Hear the good news spoken out of the mouth of a pagan king. Spoken out of the mouth of a pagan king and he he speaks for all the enemies of God and the enemies of his people, even the ones who inflict great suffering on God's people, even the things that terrorize your soul and mine and will do so this week. These enemies can do all they want. They can even take life and yet what happens? They tremble at what what God does through the power of resurrection. The forces of darkness that would leave us in starvation tremble at the great satisfaction that God brought when Jesus was raised from the dead. That chaotic storm of sin that would have you and I drown in despair can but tremble at the great salvation that God brings when Jesus was raised from the dead. The sickness of sin that would incapacitate us in pain and sorrow and suffering can but tremble at the great soothing that God brings when he raises Jesus from the dead. Hear the echoes of this pagan king. He, is, he knows he should be afraid. He knows what is coming. The enemy of God's people will ultimately be defeated. And starvation will give way to satisfaction. The storm will give way to salvation. And the sickness of sin will give way to soothing and resuscitation. Now what? Repent and believe. Believe the good news of a Jesus who comes to suffer and die. Turn to him. Think of it this way. In any of the stories we told of, of like unfair suffering, the story of being starved in, a, in, in the wilderness, right? These are pictures. We look through his miracles to see spiritual realities and even to be sinking and hopeless. If there is any part of you, any part of you that can relate to any of those things, to desperate suffering, to starving, to want and desire something you don't currently have, and even to sinking and sickness if there's any part of you that finds yourself going like yeah I can relate to that then friend hear the invitation of God to confess that tell him that tell the lord that tell the lord that you don't like the way things are tell the lord that you need help tell the lord that you're hungry tell the lord that you're that you're thirsty confess it confess it to Jesus repent believe the good news of Jesus be baptized let that be a living picture of who you are now in Christ. I don't know, here's one. For those of you pursuing membership in a local church, write your story of grace. The template's right here, did you hear it? Circumstances were terrible. <laughs> I was starving. Huh? I was sinking. I was sick. And then Jesus. You get it? Through his sorrow, identifying with me, gives us a new story, turns the story on its head. My suffering was real, and yet my salvation is tangible. Secondly, we're going to do this in a moment. Feast on his goodness. There's a custom of the New Testament church to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion, we'll do that in just a moment, and we'll declare a mystery of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And thirdly, if neither of those things is the right thing for you today, then hear the invitation of the disciples. Worship. Worship. That's a weird word. It's a religious word, I know, but... But you know what it means. Admire. Adore. And maybe even not here. Maybe it's in the next few days to come. There needs to be a tangible way in which you adore Jesus. Just stop for a minute and think, if this man walked the earth and did these things, how awesome is that? Worship. Cry out to God. Adore him. This is what they do. In a moment, we'll have a worship leader and lyrics to help us. But maybe for some of you, it's, that's not what needs to happen. It needs to be something in the depths of your soul that cries out and says, God is good. You're kind to me. And now we feast on it. Let's pray together as we prepare to meet Jesus at the table. God, we thank you so much uh, that you are so kind. I thank you for all of these powerful stories of grace and restoration and healing that we find in Jesus. I thank you that, that in Christ, the fulfillment of our longings and the Salvation from our sin is promised. Now for some of us, that just seems really lofty and <laughs> really ethereal and, and unbelievable. Would you, would you even now give them the gift of faith through very tangible pictures that when our souls are hungry, Jesus offers himself to feed us? That when our souls are sinking, that Jesus offers himself to save us? Help us to cry out in, in feeble ways, maybe just the only words that we can get muster up Jesus save me and might even now in this moment people experience the new hope the new life the healing the restoration that comes the suffering stays where we're in this until Jesus comes back to remove it all but for now we're here to experience grace of forgiveness help us now to have a foretaste of that Help us now as we prepare to come to the table to receive the miraculous elements that that through his body and blood we are now satisfied, we are made whole, we are put right forever and ever at the table, the banquet of our Lord Jesus. Thank you for this. In his name we come to him. Amen.